Father in heaven, we pray for all of those matters that David has shared with us. The opportunity to put leaflets in letter boxes. We ask, Lord, that you might even be pleased to use this means of communication to breach some, that they might be touched by your spirit, that they might choose to attend our Easter services, or in fact, Lord, a church of their own choosing, that you might use the leaflets to prompt them to seek you. So we pray for your blessing, your using of this material. So too for the Alpha Course, and so too, Father, for the Connect Groups as we come together to study your word. And we ask tonight for ourselves as we look at this passage on Palm Sunday, that you might speak to us by your spirit to take what is a reasonably familiar story and truth and to open our eyes and to have responsive, receptive hearts to what your spirit might nudge or prompt in each of our lives that we might become closer, deeper, better followers of the Lord Jesus. So Lord, we look to you and ask for your enabling and for your blessing. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. If I should have your Bibles open, Lord, to Luke, uh, to John chapter 12. We're going to work our way through the first 19 verses, or pretty much thereabouts. This passage, John 11 and John 12, well, push pause button. Welcome back to Usha, who's here tonight from being up at uh, Mullaney, who's back with us tonight for the first time in a little while. It's great to have you back. It'll be good to catch up with you afterwards. And if you're visiting tonight, then likewise, we welcome you and invite you to join with us after the service, maybe just to catch up and chat. John chapter 11, chapter 12, the Apostle John is one of those disciples who was very close to the Lord Jesus. In fact, he says himself that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he saw it. I'm not sure how the others saw it. And he wrote his gospel, he tells us at the end in chapter 20, he wrote all of these stories about Jesus in order that others might hear the truth and that they might come to believe that he's the Son of God who came and who died for us so that we might have a relationship with the living God. That's why he wrote. And John chapter 11 and chapter 12 brings us to the end of the first major section of his book, which is talking about the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, the things he did where everybody could have access to it. From this point on, after chapter 12, he will withdraw. It will become private. Chapters 11 to 17 particularly is what he says to his disciples alone with them. And certainly, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, worthy of uh, not only close study but deep reflection. Gospel ends, of course, with chapter 18, 19, 20, 21. The last four chapters talking about his passion, where he is arrested, where he is denied by the Apostle Peter, where he is tried, crucified and buried. Chapter 2021 finishes, of course, with his magnificent resurrection. So this part, 11 and 12, and we're looking at 12, is the end of this public ministry, this public demonstration of who Jesus is. And John has selected seven stories, and chapter 11 is the seventh story, the seventh sign that he selected out of all the things that Jesus did, he picked seven. And the seventh one was the story of Lazarus. 
famous name, which is even cited in our society. Lazarus means a resurrection, a the impossible of the miraculous because Lazarus is the name of the man who had died and whom Jesus raised to life again, gave new life to. That's what Jesus does. He takes people who are in impossible situations dead and can re-energise, give new life to. The Bible talks about that as being born again. He's the guy who can give us a new start in life. Well, this Lazarus figures in this chapter that he's had an influence upon this last story that Jesus, that John is going to tell us about the Lord Jesus. This is 1 to 11. Uh, tell us about an incident, this is Palm Sunday, about an incident that happened just before Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is on a Sunday, this is the Saturday. So John chapter 12 verses 1 to 11 is six days before the Passover, Saturday. Jesus came to Bethany, a small village, a couple of miles from Jerusalem, just over a hill and down the other side. And this particular place, which is now famous because that's where Lazarus lived, the one whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, Jesus having withdrawn after having raised him from the dead and having had a bounty put on his head, so to speak, withdraws into the wilderness, goes to a place called Ephraim, and comes out of hiding to return to Bethany before staging a very deliberate entry into Jerusalem. In Bethany, he has a very quiet evening with some very close friends, disciples, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. It's not in their house. The other Gospels tell us it's in the house of a man by the name of Simon, and gospel writers describe him as Simon the leper, which I assume therefore means he's Simon the ex-leper. He's somebody whom Jesus healed. Somebody else whom Jesus' life had changed. So here at the supper you've got Simon on the one hand, you've got Lazarus on the other hand, both lives impacted and transformed by this person, Jesus. And John chooses to focus not upon those incidences so much as upon verse 3, a lady. Her name was Mary. She had a sister, Martha. We've heard about them before. Martha is always serving. She's always working. She's always doing things. She's practical. That's her bent. Lazarus, simply by his life, simply by being raised from the dead, is a witness of the Lord Jesus. Uh, But Mary here does something incredible to the point where John tells us, he draws great attention to it. Verse 3 says that then Mary took a, a pint, about 500 mils of pure nard, which is an expensive perfume. John tells us that she poured it on Jesus' feet. Matthew and Mark tells us that she poured it on his head. It's not contradictory, it's rather inclusive. Uh, John deliberately focuses upon the feet because as he will go on to say in the next chapter, chapter 13, that the feet was the place where the lowly servants focused. John's pointing out Mary's attitude as one of humility, one of wanting to serve the Lord Jesus, of expressing her love and devotion to him. She takes 500 mils of this very expensive perfume. 500 mils is a lot, half a litre. 
I pay about 60, 70 bucks for about 100 mils of really high quality aftershave. This is five times that amount. And in fact, in the passage, Judas, who is one of those sorts of people who has an eye for figures, he in fact estimates that the amount, the cost of this was worth a year's wages. What's the average wage in Australia? 45, $50,000? Anybody here paid $50,000 for perfume? That's a lot, isn't it? Not uncommon in that part of the world at that time that people would spend significant amounts, not sure about that amount, but would spend money to buy perfumes and ointments and oils and spices and things to prepare for your burial. In our society what we do is we sign things and we, as you get older you start thinking about one day I'm going to leave this mortal coil and I have kids, I have two of them and I don't want to leave them with a a funeral bill so I go and um, sign up with a funeral deal so that you know the funeral's taken care of. Well that's the idea that these people would buy the spices and the ointments to prepare for when their loved ones passed away, that that would be used to cover the stench of death. Well, Mary takes what she has already invested, a reasonably wealthy family, I would surmise. She takes this alabaster jar, the other Gospels tell us, of pure nard. This is very expensive. This is high quality. This is the best that she has. Everybody's lying, you know, seated, reclining around the table, having a nice quiet meal with the Lord Jesus. And she's moved by this deep devotion, this love for him. Probably with some awareness, because every time you read about Mary, she's always sitting at his feet. John chapter 10, it's her who's sitting at his feet, and it's Martha who's serving. John chapter 11, the chapter before this, it's Mary who comes to him and falls at his feet. And here she is again at his feet, according to John. She's in somebody else's house. She gets this very expensive gift, the best that she has, and she brings it and she intentionally breaks the neck of it, pours it out, breaks it because she has no intentions of keeping any of it for any other purpose, and she pours all of it out, firstly on his head. You can imagine all of the people sitting around the table, however they were sitting, whether it was U-shaped or whatever, Uh, suddenly the conversation going quiet and just watching this, smelling this, amazed at this. And she doesn't just anoint his head, she proceeds to go further and Jesus in fact down in verse 7 talks about how she's anointed his, his whole body. The other Gospels talk about it. He says, she's anointed my body. John talks about the feet. So it's almost like she's gone all of the way. She's poured it over his head and his hair, down his neck, and then over him, and particularly then over his exposed legs and feet. When it gets to the feet, she doesn't want it to roll onto the floor and waste because it's very valuable. So she does something which is very uncustomary. She undoes her hair, which would have been long, which Paul tells us is the glory of a woman. She takes that which is glorious to her and she uses that to... Um, wipe it up, clean it, so it doesn't fall on the floor. 
So that which she has poured out on the Lord Jesus is now also an aroma upon her. Mary is a demonstration of someone who is offering Jesus not only her love and her devotion but giving him her best. She's a model for all of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus. This is the climax of belief in the Gospel of John. This is what it means to say, I believe and I follow him. It's to lay everything at his feet, to pour out our best. Palm Sunday. So as we prepare and move towards Easter ourselves, this is the challenge for us, of us giving our best, giving our all. Of course, when you do that, when you step up, when you are unashamed, when you are fully devoted to the Lord Jesus, people will criticise you. People will disagree with your level of devotion or commitment or think that you have gone to an extreme. Verse 4, John tells us, contrasting not just Mary's depth of her devotion, but Judas Iscariot and the greatness of his apathy. Verse 4 tells us, but one of the disciples names him Judas, the one who was later to betray him. He objected to all of this. Actually speaks it out. He's rather persuasive because the other gospel writers tell us that it was the disciples, others joined in. Judas says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to, and John tells us, and given to the poor? And John goes on to explain it to us. What really went through Judas's mind was, what a waste. He's not worth that. A year's wages. That should have been sold and it should have been given to me. Not me, to the poor. Give it to me as the treasurer and then I'll give some of it to the poor. And John tells us that he used to help himself to whatever funds they have to give for distribution purposes. Judas is a great contrast. Mary fully devoted. Judas greatly apathetic. Cold, calculating. Almost hateful. Covetous. It's rather incredible, really, when you think about it. Judas and Mary had both spent time with the Lord Jesus for years. Both heard the same stories, both had the same similar experiences, both saw the same miracles. And yet that truth had led to Mary being completely devoted to him and it led to some sort of hardening process for Judas. same thing continues to happen today. People hear the same truth, respond to it in different ways. Some are moved by it, challenged by it, committed to it. Others are resistant, critical, rejecting of it. Well, Mary was certainly misunderstood. She was criticised sharply. And as I said, that's what usually happens when someone gives their all to the Lord Jesus. I've told you before that I have a typical relationship, I think, with my dad, as most Australian sons do with their fathers. 
We have a good relationship but not a close one. We're okay but we don't talk deeply usually about things. I think that's typical. And I can remember clearly for the very first time in my life that my dad said to me, let's talk. He didn't say it to me when I decided to go on to the upper years of high school. He didn't say it to me when I left high school and chose a career. He didn't say it to me when I brought Rhonda home and said, this is the lady I'm going to marry. But when I told him, I'm leaving my career as a teacher and I'm going to be a pastor, I'm going to be a minister, he grabbed me by the elbow, took me into the lounge room, sat me down and said, we need to talk about this. My dad's attitude is not, was not harsh, but it's similar to Judas. He's basically saying what Judas says. Why this waste? You have a good career in front of you? Stay doing that. Why throw all that away for religion from his perspective? That's what Judas was saying. What a waste. Jesus is not worth that. Well, Mary certainly had disagreed and the Lord Jesus I point out to you, both defends her and commends her. He says in verse 7, leave her alone. Judas said something, the others started saying something. Here is a lady who has poured out her all, it is an extravagant demonstration of her love and commitment to him and she gets criticised for it. She gets attacked. And Jesus comes to her defence, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you. You'll have plenty of opportunities to deal with the poor, but you will not always have me. Jesus defends her and commends her. It's incredible, isn't it? Two people, same experiences, different responses. Well, the question has to be asked, doesn't it? As you've heard, where are you? Mary Stone, sold out, extravagant, boldly committed. Maybe you don't want to put yourself over there. What about over this side? Judas' side, critical, compromising, calculating. Well, you don't want to put yourself over there, surely. The other disciples, by the way, joined in with him. There is a middle ground that John will articulate in this very story that he tells us about. He goes on to talk about it. But let me just remind you, Mary committed. Judas, furious. She was sold out. He was worldly. She was passionate. He was into possession. Which, where's the dial for you on this Palm Sunday? John goes on to tell us about this sort of middle group. The ones who were still making up their minds. They were curious. 
verse 9 says, Meanwhile, there was a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany and they came, two-mile trip, half-hour walk. Not only because of Jesus, uh, but also because uh, Lazarus was there. Lazarus was back. After he had been risen from the dead, he had become a bit of a celebrity and people wanted to talk to him and ask him questions, wouldn't you? What happens when you die? What did you see? What goes on? So perhaps he had left the area. But this passage indicates that he had come back, particularly at this dinner, to honour the Lord Jesus. So when the crowd heard that Jesus was in Bethany and that Lazarus was in Bethany, uh, they made their trip to Bethany. They wanted to go and find out. They're curious. They want to find out more. But the reaction, verse 10, is so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Hmm. Best thing to do, isn't it? Get rid of the evidence. They were threatened politically, certainly, by Jesus. But with Lazarus' resurrection and now him being with Jesus in Bethany, they are threatened theologically because many of the chief priests were Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a life after death. Well, here is this man, Lazarus, who is back from the dead, alive again. It created theological problems for them. So the best thing they could do with him was, let's make plans to assassinate him as well. Mary, Judas, and the curious crowd who had gone to Bethany, trying to figure some things out. If you jump down to verse, I think it is 17, there was part of the crowd that was with Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that they were there and they saw it. And what they saw transformed them into witnesses. They were telling others. And John 11 reminds us that uh, many people were becoming followers of the Lord Jesus. So they were keen to get rid of him. Well, John goes on. There's another crowd involved as well, not just the crowd that were curious, the crowd that went to Bethany to find out about Lazarus and Jesus. Verse 12. This is the next day. Saturday's finished. The dinner's finished. The anointing of Mary and her extravagant demonstration of love, Judas' criticism, Jesus' defence, that's all now the day before. They have slept. They get up the next morning and Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. The next day the crowd that came to the festival, the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. People came from all over. Uh, Some were camping in Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem, east, west, north, south, all over the place. And the crowd were wondering, if you read chapter 11, they were wondering, will he come to the feast or won't he? The Pharisees have put a bounty on his head that if anybody knows where he is, tell us where he is. Well, they ignore those instructions from their leaders. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, verse 13, and they went out to meet him. On this Palm Sunday, they intentionally took palm branches. See, the focus has shifted from this quiet dinner with friends to now this very noisy public parade. It's the only time the Lord Jesus does a public demonstration. 
Every other time he avoids this sort of public attention. But on this time it's orchestrated, it's deliberate and he initiated it. He does it intentionally. Come to that again in a minute. There is another time, of course, when the Lord Jesus will have a public demonstration which will be both global and universal when he returns. This one is like a rehearsal to that event. So on this particular Sunday morning, <coughs> excuse me, the next day, <coughs> this crowd gathers together. People moving with him from Bethany, moving towards Jerusalem, people in Jerusalem moving out to meet him, these two crowds coming together. And this crowd had taken palm branches, whether they were left over from Feast of Tabernacles months before or whether they just cut them fresh or whatever it was, they deliberately took palm branches, which demonstrated something symbolically at that time. The palm branches were used as a national symbol of freedom. It goes all the way back to the time of the Maccabees, a couple of centuries before, when a guy helped deliver Israel and the Jews cut branches and celebrated. It was engraved on coins became a national symbol and a national um, implement for celebration and victory. When they cut those palm branches down, they were trying to communicate something. It's the equivalent for us of like a ticker tape parade, you know, with streamers and flags and red carpet. We would line the streets, we would cheer. It's similar to that. Well, they're not only waving these palm branches, they were shouting something and the combination reveals to us what their attitude was. They were shouting Hosanna. We sing the word Hosanna in some of our songs. When we use the word Hosanna, we use it as like a praise word, Hosanna. Literally, and when these people were using it, it literally means save now. Let the revolution begin. Get rid of the army. Get rid of the Romans. Save us. Deliver us. That's what it means. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the King. And they even call him, in verse 13, the King of Israel. That's what they say now, on this Sunday. Two crowds coming together, like two tides meshing together. Now Jesus is surrounded with his sea of humanity, palms waving and people shouting and people building each other up into a frenzy and into a hype. What they're saying is correct. He is the king. He does come in the name of the Lord. He is the son of David. They say all of those things. But what they mean and what Jesus means, two different things. He certainly accepts it because he is the king. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the saviour. He accepts it but I don't think he accepts it joyfully. I think he accepts it with a sadness. Luke will tell us that when he approaches, he's left Bethany, he's ascended the eastern slopes, he's 
deliberately, intentionally arranged a couple of donkeys. John doesn't draw any attention to that. It just says he found a donkey and has sat on it and then he rides it down the western slope towards Jerusalem. When Jesus was riding the donkey, when the people are waving their palm branches, when the people are shouting, they thought this is it. Hail deliverer. Politically and militarily, he's going to get rid of our oppressors. And Jesus goes into the city, gets off the donkey, goes to the temple, looks around and leaves. It's like a tsunami that ends in a ripple. Doesn't deliver what they're expecting. John tells us, looking back, verse 16, at first the disciples did not understand all of this, but it was only after Jesus was glorified, died, rose, ascended to heaven, glorified. It was only after that they realised these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Jesus intentionally chose the donkey, not a stallion. When kings ride donkeys, it means, I come in peace. When kings ride stallions, it means I come for war. Revelation 19, when the Lord Jesus comes back, Revelation 19 pictures him as riding a white stallion, comes for war to judge. Jesus rode not only a donkey, he rode a baby donkey. He was humble, he was gentle, he came in peace. He came primarily to establish peace with God, not peace with Rome. He was a different king. He rides in, but they misunderstand. He was here to die, not to defeat Rome. He came to conquer sin, not Caesar. They're shouting. Luke 19 tells us he was weeping. Their save us was political. His save us was spiritual. And he knows that the crowd is fickle. He knows that this crowd who says today, you are the king of Israel, in six days will say, we will not have this man rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Jesus rode into Jerusalem deliberately. to provoke the Jewish leaders to change their timetable who had said he's got to go and so does Lazarus but not during the harvest, not during the festival, not during the Passover after. If we do it during the Passover the crowds will rebel and Jesus deliberately rides the donkey to change their timing, to change their schedule. It infuriated them He knew it would. He did so deliberately to provoke them. The disciples didn't have a clue. They thought it was fantastic. This is happening. And when they saw him weeping, they did not understand. And it wasn't until afterwards that they would understand. The crowd from Bethany, who saw him raise Jesus, Lazarus from the dead, There was some element of faith and belief and they were testifying already about his miracle working power. The crowds from Jerusalem didn't understand. Curious, maybe using Jesus for their own ends. Mary got it. 
like the crowd in Jerusalem, like the crowd in Bethlehem, we have heard. They heard about Lazarus and they went to find out more. Well, verse 18 says, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Let's find out. Perhaps that's where you are. Or, some people like verse 10, the chief priests, let's remove the evidence, let's deny it. That's the question out of this passage. What will you decide about Jesus? The Pharisees, when he walks into, rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, they're pulling their hair out. They say at the end, verse 19, see, the whole world has gone after him. What are we going to do? They have no, they're frustrated, they don't know what to do. They in fact approach the Lord Jesus and they ask him to stop it. This is nonsense. Stop the people saying these things, hailing you as a deliverer. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus' response to them, it's not in John but in the other Gospels, Jesus' response to them is, today is the day to shout that I am the Messiah. Not their view of the Messiah, but he was the true Messiah. It's almost like Jesus saying, Zechariah 9 verse 9, I'm riding a donkey, the colt of a donkey. It's a clue. Put it together. He's challenging them, provoking them. So what do you say? Many of you here tonight will say, well, I know who Jesus is. Son of God, he's the Saviour, he's Lord. So what you say, it becomes what do you do? Mary challenges us. If you know who he is and what he did for us, then to, like her, to give him our best, to give him our all, to be extravagant, wasteful in the demonstration of our obedience to him. There are others who know, like Judas, but whose lives are not transformed, who are quite worldly and focused on their possessions, who think that's extreme. I don't need to do that devoted. This is quite acceptable over here. What will you decide about the Lord Jesus? That's Pilate's question a couple of chapters later in John's Gospel. What do you want me to do with Jesus who is called Christ? The crowd then said, crucify him. What do you say? Crown him? Crown him Lord of all? And if you say, I think we should crown him, then like Mary, crown him with the best. The best of all that you have. And when you offer your best, like Mary... Others will criticise you, like Judas. What's your choice? What's your decision? Jesus was loved by Mary and loathed by Judas. He was misunderstood and he was used for people's own ends. And Jesus, knowing all of these sorts of responses, deliberately rides the donkey into Jerusalem, pushes the timetable because he goes willingly and deliberately 
to his appointed end. Intentionally. He had a job to do. He came to rescue sinners. Us. And he was committed to it. And he invites us. In fact, he calls us, commands us to make a response to him. So you have three responses that you can make which will boil down to two. I understand who you are and what you did and I, like Mary, am committed, sold out. Everything. No holds barred, everything. The best that I have, I lay at your feet. We can make that decision tonight. Second, Judas. Someone who's more worldly, playing the part, walking around with the disciples, but really focus upon career, possessions and other things and not really interested in full-on extravagant love for Jesus. Undoubtedly there are some here tonight who are like that. Secretly. We don't know. The disciples didn't know. But you know. Well, thirdly, there is a large crowd in this story who are curious, perhaps a bit confused, still making up their minds about this person and what he did with Lazarus. So who is Jesus to you? Is he the king? Is he Lord? Yes? No? Not sure. And if you're in the middle, not sure, you need to find out. Because at the end of the day, when he returns, it's only those who are in the yes camp whom he will take to be with him. Who do you say Jesus is? That ultimately is what this chapter is about. Verse 34. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, on this Palm Sunday look back and remember this incredible story of this quiet dinner where someone who loved you completely demonstrated that in one sense privately but also in a sense publicly before others. So Lord help those of us here tonight who name your name, who say you are Lord. Help us to copy Mary, to be sold out, completely committed to give you our best and not to hold back. There are others, Lord, undoubtedly here tonight who aren't in that position, who know you, heard about you, heard the stories, know what's required, uh, but we're making different decisions. Decisions based upon this world and possessions and money and career or, or whatever, other choices. Lord, I pray that you might by your spirit enlighten, convict and draw them to yourself. And then, Lord, for those who are perhaps in the middle group, like the crowd, still making up the mind, enlighten them by your Holy Spirit. Flood their mind with truth. Help them to see clearly and to make the choice which is appropriate that you deserve and are worthy of our best.
We ask this because you are Lord, you are King and you are the coming judge. We pray in your name. Amen.